Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Good morning, church. How are you? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago uh, with Ananias and Sapphira. And um, I just want to say last week, what a great job uh, Chris Phelps did. It was such an encouragement to the church, encouragement to me to be able to sit there and kind of soak in God's word for a week. So uh, continue to pray for them as they make preparations by the end of the month to head out and to pastor a church. And so uh, I'm sure they would uh, covet your prayers and uh, your, uh, your, your love and support. And so I just want to thank them for what a great job he did last week. Uh, Acts chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 12. Verse 42, talking about the momentum, the opposition, and the Great Commission that takes place. And as you're turning there, I don't know if you've uh, ever had the opportunity, but if, if you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. The opportunity to play hide-and-go-seek with small children. You ever had this opportunity? Uh, there's two things you can count on. They don't want to hide by themselves because it's scary. And number two, they want you to think that they're quiet by saying, shh, don't talk. We're going to be quiet. And you're like, you're being loud right now. Like you're you're totally ruining it. And so this is what happens when you get to play hide-and-go-seek with little kids. Well, the early church, as we pick up where we were, they're not being quiet. They're, they're not trying to be quiet. They're not trying to, to hide. They're actually out in the open. They're actually in the temple, and they're gathered by the thousands, and they are being a loud voice, and they're getting a lot of attention, and the whole town, and even outside of Jerusalem, is beginning to hear about what's taking place with the early church. And so they are a loud, vocal gathering of believers that are drawing even more of a crowd and showing their true identity and purpose. One writer said it this way, when the church is silent, we have forgotten who we are. Can I just say that again? When the church is silent, we have forgotten who we are. If we are silent about our identity in Christ, if we are silent about the call that he's put on our life, if we are silent about the gospel that we're called to proclaim, then we have forgotten who we are. We've bought into a lie, a cultural lie, that says that our personal relationship with Jesus Christ is to be private. And if you look at the early church, there's nothing private about it. It's public. It's in the public square. It is pronounced that all that can hear can hear that Jesus Christ is Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite authors, said this, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Church, in the culture that we find ourselves in today, the church cannot remain silent. It can't. To not speak is to speak. To not act is to act. There's a culture that is coming against Christianity and the public profession of Christianity, and the church cannot remain silent. And if the church does remain silent, then we have forgotten who we are in Jesus Christ. The early church, I want you to understand this, they were given a God-given identity that was lived out in a gathered community. They were given a God-given identity that was lived out in a gathered community, and that gathered community was a witness to the world. And when you are a witness to the world and when you proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, there will be opposition and there will be persecution. And we've talked about that over the last several weeks. We've said persecution has one goal and the only goal that it has is silence. It simply wants to silence you. It simply wants you to keep it to yourself. 
And this early church did not keep it to themselves, but they were in the public square and they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were telling everyone who was near about the good news of Jesus Christ. They weren't playing hide and go seek. They weren't saying, shh, keep it private. No, they were a vocal, gathered community. Anytime that we vocalize our beliefs in Jesus Christ, there will be opposition. In fact, D.A. Carson says this, more people have been martyred for following Christ in the last century than all of the first 1900 years of church's history. There's an aggression towards Christianity that is growing. Persecution, as I said, has one objective, silence. And one of the best ways that we can be silenced is by making us believe that our Christianity is personal and so we should keep it to ourselves. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. The church sometimes falls into this lie that says we should be silent in the public square of society. The world wants us to believe that our personal beliefs are just that, personal, and should be kept to ourselves. But that goes directly against God's word and the actions of the early church. Our personal relationship with God is not private. It's to be corporate, and it's to be communicated. If the church is silent, it's forgotten who it is. Our identity in Christ is to be lived out in a gathered community. So as we get to verse 12, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in and look at three different sections. Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your word this morning. As we go through the narrative of the early church and how the apostles had gifts of healing and how you did miraculous signs and how you continued to gather the church together and how you continued to add to its number daily those who are being saved, Father, we would ask that you would do the same today. Some 2,000 years later, Lord, that you would do a mighty, mighty work in your church, that the church could not remain silent, but it would have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because it is salvation to those who are perishing. Father, that we would see that sin is serious and that we would repent and that we would follow hard after you. Father, I pray for this word this morning that you would speak to us by your, your presence and your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First thing is this. The church gained momentum through the apostolic gifts. Let's pick up verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Let me stop right there. Now, up to this point, Luke's been, he's been trying to keep a good count. He's a historian, right? He's like, no, there was 3,000 added. Then there was 5,000 added. And he's talking about men, so it didn't even include the women and the children that were there in those households. Now he's kind of lost count, and he's like, look, I can't even tell you, but like it's every day. Multitudes, men and women, they're coming from everywhere. So you got thousands of people gathering together. Verse 15 so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
We see that there's an apostolic gift that is given to the early church, the apostolic gift of miracles and wonders and signs. And these things are done to give credibility to the, the movement of God, the birth of the church. And these things are happening and these things are happening in such a way that it's gathering a crowd. People who are sick, people who are possessed, people who are hurting, people who are in need, they're coming from all the towns around the area to a gathered group of believers. The church it's living out its God-given identity in a gathered community, and it's drawing a crowd. Verse 12, now the signs and the wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. I want you to understand this. These were apostolic gifts. Paul references this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now we know the apostles, that was first century. That was the ones who had an eyewitness account of all that Jesus had done. We, we talked about that several weeks ago. The only one that's not in that would be Paul. And he's continually throughout the New Testament trying to, trying to prove his apostleship because he had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus, which we're gonna get to in just a couple of chapters. And so we're talking about these apostolic gifts that were given to the church as signs and wonders that drew people in, that drew people to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't have this gift of healing at their disposal. They couldn't just miraculously make it happen. And the reason we know this is because Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.20, Eratus remained at Corinth, and I left Thophemus, who was ill, in Miletus. And you're like, okay, that's a great verse. That's one of my memory verses, Jeff. How did you know that? And so um, he just, it's just a simple saying there. I had to leave him because he was ill. Now, if Paul, being apostle, had this gift of healing at all times, why wouldn't he just heal him right there? That's, just, that's not the purpose of the gift of the apostles. The gift of the apostles was signs and wonders and gifts given by God to establish the church. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, chapter 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He doesn't... He doesn't heal him on the spot. He says, look, I know you've got stomach problems. I know that you've got these, this illness. You need to have a little supplement there, a little medicinal uh, purpose for this so that you can be healed, so that you can deal with this. Paul would say, I have a thorn in the flesh and I prayed for God to take it away, but he, he isn't able to do it. So this sign and these wonders done by the apostles were not just something that they could conjure up. It wasn't some parlor trick that, that they were able to do because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. No, this was a gift of God to establish his church. We should pray today in faith knowing that all things are possible for God, that he does heal those who are sick. Yet on the other hand, we should submit to the fact that it's not always the will of God to deliver us from every illness, every persecution, and even death. They were all together in Solomon's portico. They were all together. This refers to the church. Now, if you think about this, the multitudes are growing and growing and growing. You've got 20, 30, maybe 40,000 people gathering in the temple, the temple that was there for Jewish rituals. Now these people are gathering together, this multitude. They're coming together. They're bringing sick people. They're, they're all over the place, and they're not there to worship the Jewish rituals. They're there to worship Jesus Christ, whom they had crucified. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. What an interesting verse there. There's word getting out about the movement. There's word that got out about Ananias and Sapphira. Don't go to that church, man. If you're a hypocrite, you'll die. Just don't go to that one. 
And so some of them are like, hey, we really like, we like what you're doing. We want to hold you, like we hold you up. You're, you're doing a great job. We'd like to be a part of what you're doing, but we don't really want to be in because if we're all in, then we're not sure about this. So they're kind of one, one foot in the church, one foot out of the church. They're, they're kind of keeping their distance. Isn't it true that sometimes we follow God at a comfortable distance? We want to be associated with the body of Christ. We don't want to belong to the body of Christ. Sometimes we keep, it a, we keep a comfortable distance because we want to be associated and held in high esteem as part of the church, but we don't want to submit and serve as a part of the church. There was some fear that struck the early church, some reverence for God, and some feared and stayed at a distance. And yet God still grew his church. Multitudes, both men and women, come to the Lord. Verse 14 Now more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. I want you to see that phrase, added to the Lord. It does not say they were added to the church. They were added to the Lord. A God-given identity lived out in a gathered community. They were added to the Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm gonna look at some several verses there and I want you to understand the importance of how the New Testament defines the church. It's not a building that you attend. It's not a, a group that you belong to. It's not a club or an organization that you commit yourself to. It is the body that you're gathered in. We understand there's verses out in the hallway, maybe you've seen them, that says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead that is in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And when people come to the Lord, they are added to him. That's a remarkable, remarkable theology on the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let me stop right there. Look, there is diversity in the body of Christ that should be celebrated. It is multi-ethnic, multicultural. It is people from every educational background, every cultural background. We're all gathered together as one body of believers. We should celebrate the differences that we have. We should not all look the same, but we are unified in that diversity. This is a beautiful picture that the body of Christ is people who were Jews and Greeks. They were slaves and they were free, and they were all brought in to be unified in Christ. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, get this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. What is God doing? Adding to himself. They were added to the Lord day by day, both multitudes of men and women. He's adding them individually to a corporate body. It is an identity, a God-given identity that is lived out in a gathered community. 
Do you understand what this, this is the body. If we were all single member, there would be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We're gathered here today and we all have different talents, different gifts, different functions, different giftings of the spirit, different personalities, different upbringings, different relationships. We have all these different things that make us so uniquely different that we're all different body parts that have been drawn together by the Lord and he is assessing and placing you as he chooses. A God-given identity lived out in a gathered community. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weak are, are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow a greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are tested with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to the part that, is, that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Again, it says that he composed the body as it goes, added to the Lord. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and are individually members of it. We are individually added to the Lord for a gathered purpose. I want to say that again. We are individually added to the Lord for a gathered purpose. And as you see in Acts, the gathered purpose was the multiplication of the church. We're not gathered to sit. We're not gathered to soak. We are gathered to be a body of believers that are used for God, for his glory, that the, the world would know and be gathered in and added to it's about being his witness. I'm going to be honest for just a moment. The church needs to see itself as individual parts that are connected for a greater good. We all need to be serving and functioning for the church. We all need to be functioning in the unity of the church. We all need to be participating in the multiplication of the church. And so how do you know where you fit into the body of the Lord if you're always separated and not functioning? Now, one of my favorite classes in all of high school was biology. Anybody else love biology? No? Okay, good. I loved biology. Now, I'm not saying I was good at it, but I loved biology. I loved to, to see the little animals and then, you know, cut them open. I thought that was kind of cool. And so, you know, you would, you would go to biology class and there would be dissection day and you would get to dissect the frog. Let's take the frog. And you would open it up and you'd be like, it stinks. It smells so bad. And then you get past that part. And then you would begin to look at all the different organs. And you'd be like, that's what a liver looks like what is this yellow thing? And they would tell you what the yellow thing is. And you're like, is that even necessary? Do you have to have that? You know, and you're like, you're looking at all these things and it all kind of makes sense. It's all put together. And then on test day, what they would do is, you know, they would take apart the frog, every single piece. Y'all remember this? Or is this just me? This is back when you went to school and you didn't do it online. Okay, so some of you are lost, right? <laughs> all right, so when you actually went to school and you actually got to participate, they would take every body part and they would put it all around the room in different little boxes with little pins in it. And it would be like number four. And you'd be like, oh, that's a liver. That's a liver for sure. You know, and you'd walk around and you would identify all the parts of the body, right? And you could, under, oh man, these are all so important. I know what this function does. I know what this one does. I know what this one does. But you know what was not happening on that day? Life. The room's full of death. 
And the reason the room's full of death is because every part has been separated from its purpose. Church, I want you to hear me. The church has a God-given identity for a gathered community. The gathered community is for the purpose of God, for his glory, and for the multiplication of the church. And this is what's happening in Acts. And if we all take our own individual body parts and we say, well, this is what I do, and I'm not really part of the body, there's no life. The church needs life. The church is a body that's alive. It's the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and it has been commissioned into this world to proclaim a gospel to a lost and dying world that is hopeless and helpless without him. And we do that as a gathered community with purpose. If we, if we separate ourselves into all these different body parts, sure, we might be identifiable as part of the body, but we're not functioning as part of the body. They were added to the Lord. The genuine work of God in the lives of our in the lives of the believers is the church that brings people into the Lord. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This simply shows you that what Jesus said back in Acts 1-8, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit as it comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's beginning to grow. And we're going to see it continue to grow from chapter to chapter to chapter to where there's the first persecution, the first martyrdom. And then the church is going to explode. And all these thousands of people who are gathered together are going to be sent out with a purpose. Verse 15. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This shows us that the apostles are continuing the ministry that Jesus began. When Jesus began his ministry back in Matthew chapter four, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame began to spread throughout. This is exactly what's happening now in Acts. The apostles are teaching in the, in the synagogue and they're healing in the fame of what is happening is beginning to spread all over the place and people are coming to the church they're coming to the gathering. And who's coming to the gathering? How is the church growing? How is their momentum? It's the ones who are weak. The ones who are sick. It's the ones who are needy. The ones who are lost. They see something different about this gathering of believers and they're so intrigued, they bring even their sick and they say, maybe even a shadow will fall on it. We need what you have. Listen, the the world should see such a difference in the body of believers that it says, I need, I need what you have because I'm miserable in my sin. But unfortunately, the world has not seen something that they need. They see it as something that's a waste of time, something that, that they're not drawn to. And the reason is, is because the people who were coming were not the rich and the religious it wasn't the people who thought they were good. It was those who were poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The church was built on the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and those who were poor in spirit, those who needed, they knew they needed a savior, those who knew they were sick, those who knew they were helpless, they were coming to Jesus and being added to the Lord. If a church is built on the, the church is built on the power of God's word and his spirit that moves upon it. If the church is built on a gathering of rich and religious people, it's probably preached something other than the gospel. 
The church is not built on marketing strategies. It's not built on advertisement schemes and not not built on feel-good sermons and feel-good programs. It's built on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And when it does, it, it will draw in those who are weak because they know they need a Savior. The poor in the Spirit. Poor in spirit is emptying ourselves of self-reliance. Poor in spirit is recognizing that we are utterly dependent upon his divine grace. Poor in spirit is repenting of the things that we've allowed to become first in our lives. The poor in spirit come to the Lord and find his grace and his mercy and his salvation. Jesus would say, Matthew 19, 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. As the church began, it wasn't the rich and the religious who were coming. It was the poor in spirit. The rich and the religious were about to read about. They were the opposition. So let's look at number two. The church gained opposition through the apostolic teachings. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, you think, right? About them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and, pre- and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, I want you to get this. This is the rich and the religious people. They're coming in opposition to the proclamation of, of the gospel. The apostles are thrown in the prison. There's a miraculous gift of the angel coming and setting them free. And where do they go? They go right back to where they got arrested from. And they start proclaiming the good news. They're bold in their faith. You can't stop me from doing what God's called me to do. You can't stop me from saying what God's called me to say. We are the church. We are added to the Lord. We are functioning as he has placed us in his body. The thing that comes against the church is this, pride. The thing that is always attacking the church, whether from within or from without, is pride. And there's different kinds of pride. It comes in all different forms, like intellectual pride. Some people think that they're so smart that they don't need God. Yeah, I think about the, uh, the, the debate that was between Bill Nye, the science guy, and uh, Ken Ham. Do you remember, did some of you remember this? There was a huge debate about creation. And so I sit and watch this whole thing and it was almost like you're, you're too smart for your own good. You're, you've, you've worked your science in such a way that you can't explain where God is or who God is, but you just know that you don't need God. Intellectual pride. Sometimes there's social and relational pride. Hashtag pride. You can't tell me who to love. You can't tell me how to act. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what's moral because what's moral for me may not be moral for you. There's this pride that says, I can, make the, I can make the shots in my own life, relationally, socially. 
There's family pride. I think about missions in, in places like Japan where they're so ingrained with Shintoism, which is the worship of their ancestors, that they won't dare break away from their family code to follow Christ. You think about Islam, where if you accept Christ, you can be killed by your own family members. There's all kinds of pride that are always coming against the church, whether from within or from without. They're fighting pride. And this pride is coming from within. Those who know God. Those who say they know God. But the high priest rose up, verse 17. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. You have to wonder, what was so bad? What were these apostles doing that was such a grievous crime to get them thrown in public prison? I like how they uh, put that, like, it's public prison. It's not private prison. It's public prison. You know how public prison is. They got TV. No, uh, you know, public prison. What were they doing? They were, they were so bold that they stood in the middle of the public square and proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and then followed it up by loving people who were in need. How dare they? How dare they claim Jesus Christ as Lord and follow it up by loving people who are in need? What's the call of the church today? It's to stand in the public square and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and to show that love and how we take care of those who are in need. Am I right? And it's offensive. The pride of this world is opposed to the proclamation of Christ because it directly is in conflict with their beliefs and their wants, and their desires. These men were jealous because the large crowd gathered in the temple wasn't for them. It was for Christ, whom they had crucified. But we learn from Scripture that God is also jealous. Sometimes we're jealous because of insecurities or envy, but God is jealous because he created us for a purpose. And he takes his church, and he places them individually into the body for a purpose, and that's the proclamation of his word. John two seventeen, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The word zeal there is the same word zealous that is used in this section of scripture. In the Old Testament, Exodus 25, you shall not bow down to them and serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers from their children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous for our worship. And sometimes we say, well, my relationship with the Lord is private. It's my personal relationship, and I don't really want to make it public, and I don't really want to show that in the public square, but God is a jealous God, and he wants to use you for a public purpose of proclaiming his gospel. I hope you're getting this. We see continually in Scripture that God is against physical idolatry in the Old Testament. The bowing down to other idols, the making of graven images, but he's also against spiritual adultery in the New Testament, a new form of idolatry. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians eleven two, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What Paul would say here is that you are 
the body of Christ. You've been added to the Lord. How can you take the body of Christ and prostitute it to the world? How can you continue to live in the sins that you know Jesus Christ hung on the cross for? How can you continue to deliberately do the things that you know grieve him? He's jealous. He longs for us to be used for his glory and for his purpose. And when we do that, Peter would say this in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As we continue this chapter, we see that they rejoice in their sufferings. Verse 19, though, says, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life, this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Do you see how obedient they were in the face of opposition? They were obedient. Now, here's here's something you may not have noticed. There's an angel of the Lord that comes and frees them. Why doesn't God send the angel to proclaim the good news? Because it's by God's sovereign hand that he has chosen his body to do that. The angel set them free, but the angel didn't go and proclaim. The angel sent them to proclaim. Church, God could send angels and he could preach his good news all over this world in an instant if he so choose, but his choosing was to send his church, his body. That's why the body of Christ does not sit and soak every Sunday, but it goes out and it proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. We cannot remain silent. If we are silent in this culture, we've forgotten who we are in Christ. God has chosen to use us, his church, as his witness. Verse 26, the captain the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Did the apostles obey the government when they were told to stop proclaiming Christ? No. Did they stop gathering in the temple when they were told to stop gathering? No. If the government was to say you cannot meet as Christians or teach the Bible as it, as it says about different things in our culture like homosexuality or abortion or moral issues. Should we remain silent on those issues? No. We are under a greater authority. The one who bought us at a very high price. The one who redeemed us and called us his very own children. The one who adopted us and brought us into the family of God. The one who added us to himself so that we could function as the body of Christ. We have a God-given identity that functions in a gathered community. And that's the church. Amen? We can't miss it. Because if we miss it, there's no life. The life of the church is in the gathering. Verse 27. When they had brought them... They set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name yet. Here you are. Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, you might want to underline this, we must obey God rather than men. The church must obey God rather than men. Ultimately, we as believers, we're, we're to be model citizens. 
We're to be a witness in the way that we obey. We're to be a witness in the way we obey traffic laws and speed limit signs. I'll pause for a reason. We're to be an example of how we pay our taxes. Just seems to be that season. How we follow building codes. How we renew our fishing license because it's March. Some of you know. We're to be model citizens. But there are times when we as believers cannot obey anything given to us from human authority that directly contradicts the authority of God's word in our life. We are the church. We are added to the Lord. What a beautiful thing that is. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who, what? Obey him. Wonderful. Peter, again, he's, he's back in front of the same people. And he's not softening his blow anymore about sin, is he? Hey, guess what? You killed him. And it's not like a finger in the face. Like you look it up in the Greek. It's not a, you killed him. No, it's a, you killed him. It's the same word that's, you're the light of the world. You. This is what happened. You killed him. He's not pivoting on the the presence of sin in these people's lives. He's not trying to work his way around it. He's not trying to be comfortable. The early church and the apostles confronted sin. They didn't make excuses for sin. They didn't ignore sin and they didn't condone sin. They called it out. The church has forgotten that. The church today should follow the pattern of the early church. It's not to make excuses for sin. It's not to ignore sin. It's not to condone sin. It's to call sin out, to draw people into repentance. Stephen Cole, pastor, former pastor, said this, the modern seeker service approach to evangelism argues that we should not hit people too hard with the gospel. We should make the church a place where people feel good about themselves and the message. Eventually, somehow, we slip in the gospel to them. But if people do not come under conviction as sinners who have despised Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, why would they need a savior? What is he saving them from? A low self-esteem? As some pervert the gospel? It is only when a person sees the magnitude of his sin that he will flee to Jesus as his savior. We must not dodge the issue of sin in God's judgment. Third thing, lastly, the church continued the great commission despite apostolic suffering. Verse 33, let's finish out this chapter. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But the Pharisee and the council named Galamel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the people outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all the following All followed him, were dispersed, and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if the plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They were flogged just as Jesus was flogged. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day, this was their response. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Man, I don't know. That gets me excited. They were flogged. They were beat just as Jesus Christ was beat and they were charged again. Do not speak of this. And they counted themselves worthy to be, to be identified with Christ in such a way of suffering that they did not cease day to day to be in the temple and to be in each other's homes proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, we are to proclaim in spite of suffering. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is what does it take to get you to stop proclaiming the gospel? A little bit of pressure, a little bit of offensiveness, a little bit of uncomfortable conversation. Where's the breaking point for you to not proclaim the gospel? For these men, they could be beat and it wasn't going to be the breaking point for them. For these men, as we read through church history, we realize that they all gave their lives because they would not stop proclaiming what they had seen in Jesus Christ. He was worthy. He was worth it. Charles Spurgeon says this, but we were so gentle and quiet. We do not use strong language about other people's opinions, but let them go to hell out of a charity to them. You know, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to say anything that's going to step on anybody's toes. And I don't want to have an awkward conversation with anybody. I don't want to tell them they're a sinner. I don't want to point that sin out. You know what? Out of charity, I'm just going to be quiet and let them go to hell. You think that's what the church is supposed to do? Boldness, filled with the Spirit of God, proclaiming the excellencies of God. The continuing of the Great Commission involves confronting sinners with their sin by exalting Jesus Christ above self and above self-preservation. And when they had called the apostles, verse 40, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced in the suffering. They didn't rejoice in the pain. They rejoiced in their position. That God had placed them in the body for a specific purpose, and that purpose was to glorify him. And even if it came with opposition, even if it came with suffering, they were going to rejoice because they were counted with Christ. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great and is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice because you have such a connection with Christ. You have been added to the Lord. Matthew 16, 24 through 28. I'm going to end with this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return of his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus Christ has called us to be part of his church. That may result in opposition or persecution or suffering, but as we live out our God-given identity in a gathered community, you know what he promises to do? Add to his church daily, those who are being saved. Man, I want to be part of a move of God, don't you, church? Can we pray for a revival? Can we pray for boldness? Can we pray that we would see that our lives are lived worthy of the gospel? Would we humble ourselves today? Would we fall on our face? Would we repent of sin that we've allowed to be in our life? Would we be a church that longs for God to do a mighty move, to bring in our friends, our neighbors, our community, those who are, war, those who are weak and those who are poor in spirit, bring them into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Let's be bold. Let's be witnesses. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.